Then the men set out from there, and they looked down to Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. When Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous people, in the 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he, again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh let, the Lord, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word, which you tell us, does not return void. Your word you give to us, your children, because you love us. I pray that you would speak to us in and through your word, that you continue to draw us to yourself, that we might live righteous and just lives before you and the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, I, uh, I remember watching an, an old show when, growing up uh, about a judge. I racked my brain to try to figure out what the show was, doing the old Google thing, and I couldn't figure out what show it was. But... There were certain aspects of the show I just, I just remember that seared into my brain. For one, there's this, this character who was a judge when he was in his home, hanging out with his family, you know, having his friends over. He's just this normal guy. He's like, hey, he's a relatable person. Then all of a sudden, you know, change scene. Now that same person has got a black robe on. He's sitting on his judgment throne, you know, passing verdicts. And there's tension in the show. Is he passing the right verdict or is he, you know, doing the right thing and it's kind of revolved around some of these tensions. But all of a sudden when he put on that robe, he was just a different character. Um, 
He was a lot less approachable. He wasn't, um, because all of a sudden, you know, he could, he could, he could punish someone uh, for the rest of their lives or he could set them free. And he could, he could act rightly or, or, or act wrongly on, on behalf of other people. Um, what if he's wrong in his judgment? What if he's too harsh? What if he's too soft? And I think, actually, this is one of the more uncomfortable characteristics about God. Um, especially in, in the Western world, in our minds, the way we view God is, is, I don't know that we always like the idea of God having that kind of power, of him being a, a judge. We love to think about God as Jesus, the one who draws near to the brokenhearted. We love to think about Jesus, the one who seeks and saves the lost, the one, you know, the, I call him the, the cuddly Jesus. Um, we love that. But the idea of that same Jesus who goes and seeks and saves the lost, who's near to the brokenhearted, who is the good shepherd, the thought of that Jesus putting on a black robe and sitting on a throne and, and, and having a gavel in his hand, that makes us uncomfortable. Uh, judging the earth like that is unnerving to us. Why? Well, I think in part, we wonder, is, is he going to be accurate in his judgment? So, I mean, the Bible tells us he is, but like, is he actually going to do it right? Is he going to be a little too harsh? Is he going to be the mean God? Um, and, and the idea itself of judging feels excessive, right? We all know the one thing you're not supposed to do to anybody, you're not supposed to judge people, right? And now here God comes in judging us. It feels excessive. Can't we just love people? Can we just forgive? Can we just move on? God is a judge, and God is this merciful person that's kind. They seem like polar opposites uh, of each other. God as a judge can sound contrary to his nature and how we think of him. But this is only until you've been deeply wronged or you've seen deep wrong in the world, and all of a sudden then, what do you need? You need a God to come and act justly, to do justice on your behalf. Um, and you know, when you look around the world, it doesn't take too long to conclude that the world is in deep, profound need of justice. You don't have to look too far to see it. You look in our own alleyway. You look in your own, your own life and the different circumstances in your own, uh, in your own lives. You, you look around the world. Um, there's injustices everywhere. And, and just to be clear, when I say injustice, what I mean is uh, things that violate the laws of God, law-breaking People acting out of selfish ambition instead of love of God and neighbor. This is what injustice is. And, and if God truly is the merciful God that we love him to be, then it's actually out of his mercy that he must come and judge the world and set it right. Because if he was just going to let uh, justice go, that's not mercy, that's negligence. And, you know, Tim Keller says it like this. He says, if you have a God who never judges, you don't have a merciful God. One of the things we learn, even in passages that are before us this morning, is the idea of judgment and, and mercy of God uh, f uh, married um, together. So much so that they can't exist apart from each other. For God to bring about his redemptive plan in the world, he has to come to bring justice to bear in the world, to end the reign of terror. And in this scene before us, what we're going to discover is a courtroom type of drama where Abraham is approaching the, the judgment seat of God and, and he's exploring and navigating what does it mean for God to be just and righteous? What, what does this mean? And, and you know, this is, I probably shouldn't, these are things I shouldn't admit in front of you, but this is a passage I never really gave a lot of thought to until this last week studying it. It was one of those kind of weird passages where, you know, it's like, okay, he's working his way down to 10 and then the city still gets destroyed. So it seemed like a strange 
exercise, but the more I read, the more I dove into it, I think this discourse between God and, and Abraham here is rich, uh, and, and I think there'll be much for us to, to feast on in this discourse, and I think there's, there's two amazing truths that Abraham helps discover for us about God. Um, he, he helps us discover what does it mean for God to be just, and what does it mean for God to be merciful. So first, um, Abraham discovers what it means for God to be just. You know, to set up this scene, right, passes before us. Abraham has just shared this meal with these three men, two of which are angels, one of which is the Lord himself. It's Jesus. And, you know, after the meal, they go outside, they're stretching their legs, they, they look towards the city of Sodom. And the Lord says this in verse 18. It says, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him for I have chosen him. He may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So he's starting to hint to Abraham, you know, speaking out loud. He's like, hey, do we, do we let Abraham in on what's about to happen to, to Sodom? And he reiterates kind of why he's letting Abraham in on the secret because you know, Abraham uh, is meant to be this great nation that's, that's going to be the blessing place of, of the earth filled with justice and righteousness. But there's this place that lacks this justice and righteousness in Sodom. And so he says this in verse 20. He says, then the Lord said, and presumably Abraham can, can hear him saying this, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether or not they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So there's this outcry coming out of uh, the land. Um, and this word outcry is actually the same word used to speak of the, the blood of Abel um, crying out uh, from the ground uh, when his brother Cain killed him. Um, and it's just one initial beautiful discovery is that God hears all the injustice of the world. It cries out to him. He can't help himself but hear it. It cries out to him and begs him to come and make it right, which is still true of you today. Um, so, so what is their injustice here? Well, Ezekiel 16, speaking on this, says this. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. What Ezekiel tells us about Sodom is it's this place that they had all the stuff, but they, they didn't help anyone in need. They were the epitome of what it means to be selfish. And in coming chapters, we're going to see that it's not just profound social in, injustice in the city, everyone thinking about themselves, not helping out anyone else, but there was profound sexual injustices as well. It's a vile and wicked place uh, that you would not want to be, that you would not want to live. And whether or not it was people crying out or just the injustices themselves crying out to God, the Lord hears and he can't just let it go because God is just. And when you are a just person, you can't just let injustice go. So he's gonna go. This is kind of this really interesting scene. He says he's gonna go and he's gonna investigate. He's gonna look at the evidence. He's gonna see if it's, if it's true or not. Uh, he's gonna, so to speak, put on his black robe and enter the city sit on his judgment seat. 
And, you know, it's not like he doesn't know what is happening. This isn't to say that God is not sovereign. He doesn't understand what's happening there. But this is just to say in this particular role as judge, he's going to go and he's going to go and examine the evidences uh, before him. He's going to go and examine to see what's happening. And, you know, the truth is in your own lives, maybe you're experiencing your own injustices in life. Maybe there's small things in relationships gone sideways, mistreatment, a mean boss, um, maybe you've experienced gross injustices, like what's happening in Sodom, sexual and, so, and social injustices. The first thing I think we need to know is that God is just. He sees, he hears, he knows that you are wronged, and he will judge against the wickedness. And the reality is we need him to, because many times the judges of this world that are, are meant to be just and righteous aren't always just, are they? They don't always get it right. They, they mishandle evidence. But this tells us the Lord knows. He goes, he investigates, he knows. He knows what's right, he knows what's wrong. He is righteous and always righteous. His judgments are always just. And when he puts on his robe and examines the evidences, his judgments are always pure. He's always acting on behalf of the innocent, of those who have been wrong, punishing the evil. And it's at this point where I think this, this courtroom drama really begins to pick up. We have God sitting on this bench, ready to pass judgment. Abraham knows that, that God is just and righteous, so he approaches him and he, he appeals to this nature of God that, God, I know that you're just, and would you, would, you know, which is true for us too, that you wouldn't trust an unjust God to hear your cries, right? You, you trust him because you believe that he is just. And so he goes to him as a just God and um, and, uh, and he approaches God and he lays it all out there, trusting him to act in accordance with his character. And this is what happens here in verse 22. So the men turned there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Uh, uh, then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So, um, so, the, so the language translated here as Abraham drawing near and approaching is, is very, it's legal language in the Hebrew. And it's used to describe someone approaching a judge. And so you have this idea that Abraham is taking up a defense of the people. Uh, and in this, what is, what's happening is that Abraham is assuming um, some Old Testament roles that are not solidified yet, but they become more solidified throughout the Old Testament, which is that he's taking up this role of prophet and priest, um, which this is what prophets and priests did. Prophets spoke on behalf of, the, of God and, and behalf of the people sometimes. And, and priests, their role was to mediate between God and the people and this is the role that Abraham has taken up as he approaches this bench and begins to plead. And this is his defense here in, in verse 24. He says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's profound things that he's coming before the Lord and saying. You know, and, you know when, a, when a lawyer steps in to, to do their work, to defend their party, they're not trying to step in to establish the law in that moment. The, the courtroom isn't the place for that. They're appealing to the laws that already exist. And this is kind of what Abraham is doing. He isn't trying to say that God is not just. He's saying that's the given here. That's the law. But because you are just, he's building a case appealing to God's justice. Because God can only act in accordance to his justice and his righteousness. And I think there's two surprising aspects to this appeal that we find that the other theologians have pointed out. 
um, for us. First, that this appeal that, that he gives to the Lord in this moment is surprisingly universal. Um, I know the word universal is probably a scary word. Let me explain. Uh, he's, he's, look what Abraham is saying here. He isn't saying, Lord, just save the righteous people of Sodom. Let's, let's just save Lot and get my family out of here. Let's get the righteous out of there. And then, you can, then you can do away with the rest because they deserve it. Um, that's not what he says. He's pleading that Sodom itself would be saved because of the righteous few. Let that sink in. Sodom, not a good place. Think about one of the worst places you can imagine on this earth. Uh, it's worse than that, I think. Um, and we're going to find out how bad it was. The story gets a little rowdy next week. It's fair warning. Um, it's a bad place. And Abraham's saying, no, save them all for the sake of 50 righteous. It's a surprising universal request. Abraham is the blessing man. Blessings and righteousness flow from him to the world. And here he is pleading not just for his own flesh and blood, but for the place that are filled with people that are his enemies. I'm sure some of the people in this city have probably attacked him and not wanted him in the land either. It's filled with his enemies and Abraham takes up their case before the Lord. Think about that. It's a shocking request. Which leads to the second thing that we learn about this appeal um, is, is that as one commentator points out, it's a profound theological exploration. Um, as he's asking these questions and doing this lawyer thing, he's doing this theological deep dive and exploration for us to discover things about the nature of, of the justice of the Lord. And in his questions, Abraham, again, is not questioning whether or not God is just. He's saying, of course, you're just. You, you can't not be just. You can't not be righteous. I know this. Because of that, would you spare them? And what Abraham is getting at is this. Abraham is asking God, could you value the righteousness of the few so much that it would cover the unrighteousness of the many? This is what Abraham is asking. Could, could you value the righteousness of the few so much that it would cover the unrighteousness of the many? I think, if we're honest, this is maybe a hard pill for us to swallow, especially as Westerners, um, that we, we are individualistic in how we think about things in our culture. The way we would, um, we would, we would say, of, of course, this kind of activity isn't possible. You know, we're all responsible for ourselves. I'm not responsible for anyone else. It might be fair to let the righteous go out of the city, but to spare the city because of the few righteousness, that's not justness. That's crazy. This isn't how it works. Uh, but in this culture, I think in the culture of Scripture, this isn't what we find. Uh, of course, we always have individual responsibility, but we also have a corporate responsibility. Our actions actually affect everyone around us. You actually see, see evidences of this working out in, in other places of Scripture. One kind of low-hanging fruit spot to point out is in Joshua when this man Achan steals a garment. And because of that sin, his whole family gets killed. Uh, punished for that one person's sin. One this tells us is we're not just individuals. Uh, we are, uh, but we're not just individuals disconnected. We are covenantally bound by our actions and our actions have profound effects on others. Um, and what Abraham is wondering in this deep theological dive is this. Listen, if the righteousness can be swept away by the act of the wicked, could it, could it work the other way too? Is it possible for you to spare the, the people because of these remnant righteous, righteous people. 
As, as Tim Keller puts it, could the God of righteousness love righteousness so much that the righteousness of the few covers the wickedness of the many? This is a profound theological question for him to ask. Trying to discover the, the limits of God's just nature. And as he does this, he, it's almost comically, I mean, if you have children, you can kind of hear a child asking this, what about for 50? Would you do it for 50? What about for 45? Would you do it for 45? What about for 40? Would you do it for, what about for 30? It's almost comical. He, he works his way down. But notice God's response to this theological question. What does he say every time? He says, yes, I'll do it for 50. I'll spare the city for 50. I'll do it for 45. I'll do it for 30. I'll do it for 20. I'll do it for 10. What a profound discovery that Abraham has made about God's justice. That it is true that the righteousness of the few could potentially cover the wickedness of the many and save the city. Abraham was probably way ahead of his time asking this kind of question. Doing this deep theological work and this discourse with God. But then the scene ends kind of abruptly. Um, doesn't it? He, he, after he asks about the 10, he goes home. Um, goes his separate ways. But it kind of begs. We want him to go one further, don't we? There's, there's one more question that this, this is begging him to ask. It's like the, an unfinished scale. Um, we're waiting for him to ask one more question, right? What about if there's just one righteous person in the city? Would you spare the city for one? So why did, why did Abraham stop at 10? Well, of course, we can't know for sure, but I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> um, but uh, maybe, maybe he loses his nerve a little bit. Maybe he's, he's, you know, he's in front of the Lord. He's kind of working his way down. He's like, oof, I got 10. I'm probably pretty good with 10. Maybe I'll walk away. Or maybe he starts thinking about Lot. And he's like, man, what if Lot is not counted as righteous? Uh, what is that going to mean for him if I go down to the one and, uh, and there's no truly righteous person in the city to save it? I mean, this is actually the problem of Abraham's discovery too. There isn't anything he can do about it. He discovered this amazing pearl of truth, but wasn't able to act on it. Because maybe he's wondering not just about Lot, but about himself. Listen, if I was in this city, and if there was just one righteous person in the city that could save the city, would I be counted as righteous? Would I be righteous enough to save this city and all the inhabitants of it? And I think this actually may be at the heart of our concerns with God being the judge of the world too. What happens when we're being examined? Um, what happens when, when, when we're the ones that, that act wickedly? Are we righteous? Well, the answer, of course, is no. That's the challenge of God and his judgments. We aren't righteous either. We're both victims and perpetrators of injustice. We act wickedly. Wickedness happens against us. We hide our sin. We minimize our flaws because maybe they're not as bad as others. We struggle to be the people we're called to be, to be the blessing people of the world that are filled with justice and righteousness that we're called to be. We struggle to, to, to be blessings to the world. We struggle to be the kind of people who would even do what Abraham dared to do, to, to pray not just for our friends but for for the saving of our enemies? Would we dare intercede before the Lord for them, for those whom we hate? Right? We want God to judge when we need to be rescued, but what about when the world needs to be rescued from us? We don't, we don't like that judgment, do we? Which begs the question, is there anyone out there that is righteous enough that can save us, that can approach the throne on our behalf, that can 
save this place that we call home. And this is where we find that that God is not just a, a just God, but he is a merciful God. God is merciful. But his mercy, in his mercy, he doesn't just take off his judge's rope. It doesn't mean that he ignores evil. It doesn't mean that we escape with no judgment. It just means that judgment actually falls on someone else. God in his mercy sends one to the earth that is perfectly righteous and able to save the cities of this world. God in his mercy sends the one righteous one who can enact this great discovery, who can actually do something with this great discovery that Abraham has made about the righteousness of God. A greater prophet, the the one uh, greater priest whose, whose work is eternal. Hebrews 7 says this about this work of Jesus. Hebrews 7.22 says this, this makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you hear that? It's an Abraham. And every other prophet and priest to come after them is dead. Uh, they, aren't, they aren't strong enough. They aren't good enough. They cannot intercede for us to, uh, forever. Abraham is no longer interceding for us. But, but Jesus, when he comes, he holds this office forever. Forever interceding. Forever pleading to God the Father on your behalf. Forever standing as the righteous one before the judge. Forever covering you and I with his righteousness, bringing salvation to the world. Jesus is that one, the one righteous person who enacted this great truth, giving up his righteousness to us that we might be counted as righteous, the one for the many. How does this happen? Well, for some fun afternoon reading, uh, Romans, you know, four and five and six, that whole section, I think really goes into this in helpful ways, talking to us that, that Jesus does this for us, but we're still his enemies. Well, we were still sinners as, as vile as the, the Sodomites he advocated to the Father for us. He himself, Jesus, pleaded to the judge on our behalf. He, he, and as he pleads on our behalf, he pleads the justice of God. And this is what Jesus says to the Father. He says, is my righteousness, righteousness strong enough to cover the law-breaking of the world? Could the one cover the sins of the many? And the answer, again, is Yes. Romans 5.18 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is the work of Christ. Paul is explaining to us this, this truth that Abraham began to discover back here in Genesis 18, that in the fullness of time, The one came that is the righteous one that would cover our wickedness. And how does he accomplish this this fact? How how does he actually justify us and make us righteous as he is righteous? Because God can't just forgive evil and pretend like it doesn't happen. God in his justice has to punish evil. And this is what makes Jesus' work all the more incredible. Because he put himself as a righteous one under sin, under the curse of the wickedness that we might have life in him. Galatians 3.13 says it like this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. 
Did you hear that? Jesus actually became the curse. He became the punished one that we would have life in him. In this, the one righteous one, he took the weight of the wickedness of the world on himself, that as you have faith in him, that he might share his righteousness with you. God, the judge, poured out his wrath on the righteous one so that you might be free and have his righteousness. The one for the many. You know, the theological word we use to describe this that that Paul uses in Romans 5 is, is justification, which is another courtroom word that says you are declared righteous. It's saying you've been brought before the judge and the judge has looked on you and said, no, you are righteous, you are good. You are perfect, you are pure. How could he say that? Because the righteousness of Christ now covers you. And his righteousness that he gives you is not some temporary fix either that you get for a little bit and you gotta, you know, work on it every now and then to, to, get it, to get it more and you drain it and you gotta go fill it back up again. It's not like that, it's eternal. As Jesus is eternal, so the righteousness that he gives you is forever. This is who you are now. You are the, the righteous remnant. And as you learn this deep truth about yourself, as we grow in our righteousness, our lives begin to match the inward reality that this is who you are. You are the righteous ones, the new creation, the children of God. And as you do that, um, what happens, what becomes, you become like what Abraham's descendants were supposed to become, a blessing to the world, a, a just and righteous people. In other words, you and I are now priests going out, uh, mediating on behalf of God to the, to the world, mediating the blessings of the Lord to our neighbors. We're a blessing people. I think there's a couple implications I, I quickly want to go through for this for us. For one, it makes us a people who live humbly. I mean, look at part of this prayer here. He calls himself dust and ashes before the Lord. Abraham has profound humility. He knows that he's going before the judge of the world. For us, we need to see our neediness before the throne, that we are dust and ashes. And what this says is this, and you and I are not superior to anybody. We can't look down on anybody when we know who we are. That we're not saved by our own good works, by our own will, by our own effort, but by the righteousness of Christ alone. Because of this, we can't look down on anyone else. Any goodness and righteousness we have, we know is not our own because it is Christ who is making us holy. In this, we're humble people who readily bring the names and places that we're tempted to look down on to the Lord in prayer. Who are those people and those groups that you, are, that you hate? Um, and I know we, we like to say, Christians, we can't. We're good people. We don't hate people. Yes, you do. We all hate some people. Just be honest about it and say, man, what would it be like if I began to pray with them? This is the duty you're called into here. You're called into this priestly duty in Christ. And if Jesus can do it while we were his enemies, we can do it for our enemies too. Because Jesus makes us into a kingdom of priests to intercede for the whole world on his behalf, that the world might be blessed. And we can't do that if we actually think that we're better than other people, if we think that we're more deserving than other people. So seeing Jesus as our great high priest and prophet helps us to have humility, to know that our righteousness is not our, our own. But secondly, paired with humility, humility, I think this courtroom drama gives us as the people of God a profound boldness. And it's this pairing of humility and boldness that I think is unique and beautiful. Because you and I are loved perfectly in Christ, because we are made righteous in Christ right now, we can go before the Lord and plead for the world with great boldness and expectation. Listen, according to this, if just 10 righteous people were there, they could have saved the city of wickedness. I think that principle still holds true for us. 
That if, that if we are people who live like God has called us to do, that, that the people in this room, you can actually transform and save the city that is Yakima. Ten righteous people can save a city of wickedness. Listen, if we take this seriously, if, if we are blessing people in our community, if we pray diligently for our enemies, if we plead on their behalf, asking that they might be saved as we are saved, our city will be transformed. Question, is that how you expect God to, to work? Or are we tempted to cower to cover our eyes and to grow numb to the pains of our neighbors and our enemies. But what if we looked to our great high priest and boldly approached him with audacious requests? What if we were serious about boldly interceding for those who are enemies and enemies of righteousness? I think a community like that, that is both humble to look down on no one, but bold and confident in our place to approach the Lord in bold prayer, I think a community like that can can save a city. So the question is, well, how do we become this kind of people? Well, it's not by just looking to Abraham. Abraham himself was not able to save the fate of Sodom. Uh, But it's by looking at the one who comes after Abraham, the greater one, our high priest Christ. We need to learn to look to, to Jesus, to look to the righteous one who came and died and conquered death that we might find life in him. And that is the merciful judge that you can trust and you can follow, and you can grow him because he didn't just turn his justice off. But he was able to put himself under the sting of justice, dying the unjust death, the one righteous one taking the punishment of the wicked many that we might be counted and numbered among the righteous. It's by looking to him, your great high priest, your great prophet, who speaks to you even now, who intercedes for you even now. It's by looking at him that we can be transformed and made into this kind of people. Because this is a prophet and a priest, and a judge, and a king that we can trust and follow. May we be a people, and become a people who boldly and humbly look and follow our high priest, and and who use the righteousness that we've been given for the life of the world. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks that you are the just, and merciful, and righteous king. I pray that you would grow us into the righteousness that you've given us. That we would not squander this gift, but we would use it to be a blessing to the world. Make us a blessing people, people who are known to lay our lives down for the sake of our neighbor, even if our neighbor is our enemy. Father, we do pray boldly that you would use this small expression of your kingdom here and that you would use all the other churches in our city to bring your transforming power to bear, that our own city might be saved and spared from wickedness and unrighteousness. Do this work in ways that only you can. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.